This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. to another Ripflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guests are the co-directors of Scala, or the incredibly strange rise and fall of the world's wildest cinema and how it influenced the mixed-up generation of weirdos and misfits. Welcome, Jane Giles and Ali Catterall. We're going to do a bit of a discussion about the documentary, and then we're going to break off and talk about three films that have influenced everything in your adult life. Um, so let us start with the Scala, three exclamation marks, I should add. Following the book, where does the journey for the documentary begin? Good question. So when the book came out, published by Fab Press in 2018, September 2018, um, several different people actually asked whether or not there was going to be a documentary based on the book. Um, I th- because it was very cinematic in terms of obviously it's subject matter it's it's a book about cinema but also um there were stories in the book that weren't really kind of like that needed kind of like more space to come out so i started looking into the idea of um doing a documentary based on the book and also i'd stumbled across some um bits of archive footage that I didn't know existed, some amateur archive, a whole hour-long chunk of it, which I didn't know before. Sort of came out the woodwork after the book was published. Um, Also a three-minute-long student film shot at the Scala in 1992. So I knew there was archive footage that hadn't been seen before, in addition to the fantastic Michael Clifford 30-minute film Scala that he made for um, Cable London back in 1990. And also sort of more importantly, I knew that I had some people around me who were interested in making a really good film about the Scala. Um, first and foremost was Channel X, who were the first producers on board. Um, they uh, mostly make television comedy. They made um, uh, the incredibly strange film show with Jensen Ross back in the day. And that actually launched at the Scala. Uh, they made the uh, Vic and Bob um, Shooting Stars programmes and also they made Detectorists, the fantastic um, uh, metal detector, uh, um, I don't know what you call it, comedy drama. It's it's a sort of folk drama. It's wonderful. Uh, so they came on board and um, 
along with Andy Stark, who is the producer of the films of Ben Wheatley, Peter Strickland, Prano Bailey Bond. Um, so we started kind of like exploring what a film about the Scala would look like. We actually tried to find a director for it and um, couldn't find anyone available at that time. That was like back in sort of 2019. And so the producer said to me, you do it. And I knew that I couldn't do it on my own. So I said, I'll do it if my editor of my book, Ali Cashel, who I'd met during the researching of the book, um, he's someone who has a really interesting story to tell about uh, being a student up the road. So um, the producer said, go for it. So that's how Ali and I ended up co-directing this documentary about Scala, which is sort of loosely based on the Scala book that we discussed back in 2016. So, Ali, um, and this 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 is the question I'll, I'll ask you, and Jane, as well. But first, you, Ali, what was your what was the first time you crossed the threshold to go to the Scala? What was what took what took you there in the first place? Well, this, this is interesting because I didn't live anywhere near Kings Cross. I lived down in 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 Chelsea, uh, near World's End, right? We kind of what we call the wrong end of Chelsea. And um, the reason I was in King's Cross, which, which, which no one with any sense would have gone if they didn't live in King's Cross um, already, because it was an incredibly interlubrious place, as, as, as you possibly know. It was I was studying a um, very progressive liberal college of further education called Kingsway, Kingsway Princeton College, it was called then. Hmm. Uh, it was a place where the Sex Pistols had actually um, attended, I wouldn't say educated, but attended um, about 12 years before me, people like sort of John Lydon and uh, John Wardle, John Wobble, and, and, and John Beverly Ritchie, uh, and all the Johns. They're all called John. <laughs> okay. And um, they all attended Kingsway. And uh, as I said, it was a very sort of liberal place. And it was for it was for kind of school dropouts or kind of um, uh, sort of smart working class kids or otherwise distracted children. Uh, people like me who'd come from a extremely bad background and, and, and incredibly, um, can I swear on this podcast? You can, yeah, yeah incredibly fucking fucked up background um I'll, I'll i'll give you um i'll give you the top line um later of that when we talk about performance but for now i found myself in kingsway and kingsway was um about five minutes walk from the scala and i was coming out of kingsway one day in uh, i think october so about a month after i started and i saw there was a film called birdie there by alan parker uh it was with nick cage and matthew Modine. And um, it was a story about obsession and mental illness. And, and a guy thought he was a bird. Actually, he was a Vietnam vet. He had a traumatic, terrible time and sort of got into his head. Um, and I thought, that's for me. That, that, that's absolutely up my street. And I, and I went in and I was um, incredibly daunted because um, at that age, you know, sort of 1986, um, you, know, you know, the only sort of places available to me were those kind of moth-eaten sort of multiplexes, you know, your kind of local multiplex where, this, you know, the aromas of popcorn and candy are kind of pumped in and you're seeing, you know, your usual kind of mainstream fare. So the Scala was something very, very different. And, and that was what happened. And gradually I fell in love with it. And it became a, it became a home from home. And do, do, you, do you remember a tipping point where it becomes a home from home? Because obviously they're stumbling across a place and then there's making somewhere kind of like your cultural home, as it were. Yeah, it, it, it yeah, it, it took about a month or so. Um, during that time, probably as is probably common with people who enter the Scala, you start inviting your mates, almost for kind of protection. <laughs> it's like, you know, this place is fucking mad. You have to, you have to experience this. And so, you, you know, you, you start taking friends and sooner or later, 
you become a little gang and you start going and then you then you start taking sort of dates and you start taking other sorts of people and um and yeah and, until finally it sort of gets it gets under your skin and into your bones and and, and the scala then becomes very much part of your dna and i think that's the experience for for a great many people jane for you then what was what what do you remember your first what was your first memory of that that moment that that you were drawn to going up for the first time my experience is slightly different from Alice in that um, I lived outside of London near Gatwick Airport. I was 16 years old, so just 17 years old in the summer of um, 1981. And I was knocking around with a bunch of school friends, a bunch of punks who would go up to London and explore the King's Road, explore, uh, go to venues like I remember like we had a, a, a trip up to the Lyceum to see the cramps. Um, so we go to gigs and uh, they discovered the Scarlet in Fitzrovia um, just off the Tottenham Court Road. And uh, it just moved in 1981. Um, Channel 4 uh, came and um, sort of evicted the Scala from its premises in Fitzrovia in April 1981. Okay. So um, the cinema owner, Steve Woolley, and his staff uh, managed to negotiate a bit of cash um, from the deal of uh, Channel 4 coming in to um, find alternative premises, which was actually barely a mile up the Euston Road to King's Cross. So they moved in in three months flat. It was an extraordinary feat. And um, so I was there in August 80, uh, 1981 um, after the Scala had opened in King's Cross in July 1981. I was there for an all-nighter. Um, I came up with my mates from Crawley. They already knew, like I said, the Fitzrovia Scala. They were a bit scornful of this massive, dirty old picture palace in King's Cross. I think they liked the other one because it was sort of like fairly newly built. It had been built in 1976 mm. as the other cinema. Um, and it was quite intimate and it was underground, whereas the Scala in King's Cross was overground and up. But I just fell in love with her at first sight. So my experience was different from Ali's in that I went with a group of friends from the outset. I went to an all-nighter and I fell in love at first sight uh, rather than... Um, and it was sitting there in that massive auditorium um, watching films like The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, um, five films in a row, being with a group of people, being away from home, which was really important to me, um, I knew that I could stay up all night because I spent the summer cleaning airplanes um, at night as part of a crew in uh, Gatwick Airport just to earn some sort of holiday money. But I'd become part of that sort of nighttime economy and, um, and, and found it quite magical, actually. I mean, the sights of the lights, um, you know, kind of like across Gatwick at three o'clock in the morning were stunning and sun rising and rabbits running down the runways it was it was really sort of special so i like that feeling and the auditorium of the scala at night um even though there are people sort of sleeping <laughs> on the floor between the rows between the films but like sitting there pushed up against my boyfriend listening to um joy division for the first time i don't think i'd heard the band before I remember sitting there hearing Love Will Tear Us Apart sort of booming around that massive auditorium when cinemas, like Ali alluded to how other types of cinemas were at the time, 
So I was literally used to the the you know the embassy in Crawley that would show windmill play windmills of your mind as intermission music. <laughs> I think it's sort of great now. I I would listen to windmills of your mind now, but at the time it just seemed really like old school and really sort of stifling. This was something really new. What comes across clearly in the documentary is as much as there was a fantastic program at the you know, from the day it started, so to speak, it was always a bit on the edge. It was always daring. Often experimental stuff was shown. Um, but but going to see films is ordinarily a kind of almost like it's a it's a shared experience, but it's also a singular experience. So how out because the shared experience is just sitting in quiet dark with loads of strangers. That's generally how a cinema works. But but it, what's clear from the documentary is a social life emerged out of the Scala, which doesn't seem to sort of go with go with the idea of going to see films. So what how, why do you think that is the case? I mean you Ali, you talked about, you know, one of your your tipping points was you just started to bring your friends along and stuff, you know, this this weird and wonderful place. So what is it about sort of that kind of film culture that sort of sort of breeds itself as it were? I think you have to look at the fact that the Scala more than many other reps at the time was had been and continue to be in places a music venue and i think that's very important i think it's significant to look at something that's more than a cinema something that's has the kind of community vibe or at least kind of gang treehouse mentality um of a gig these these were films as gigs they were not films as kind of sacred uh, objects that you you, you you kind of turned up to and venerated necessarily although people certainly did um, but think of it as a kind of gang mentality. And this is reflected in the kind of tribes who went there and certainly tribes who were from, um, you know, from a kind of almost sort of social cultural kind of point of view, uh, music tribes, quite a lot of them. So you had the rockabillies, you had the punks, you had the post-punks, you had the goths, um, you know, you, you had all kinds of people. So all those tribes came together to give you that kind of gang mentality, which was more like going to a gig if you like so so when you're sitting there in the scarlet in the dark watching the films it's almost like you're watching a band it's almost like you're watching bands on film and obviously quite literally you are when you're watching music documentaries um but yeah I, I, and, I, and i guess jane would probably have more to say about that as well too well that that's right and i think what's really interesting is that it was the that immediate post-punk moment when it started 1978 and the thing about the, the thing about punk, obviously, it was it had that DIY, like anyone can be on stage. And I think the Scala had that feeling that actually the people in the audience were often the same as the people who were making the films that were on the screen. In the case of Derek Jarman, for example, he was someone who would literally come to the Scala to watch movies, but also to watch the audience for his own films, like, Jubilee and Sebastiani that were shown at the Scala. Um, so I think it's got that. And also because the Scala audience was quite raucous, like a punk gig or like any gig, actually, um, or nearly any gig, not, not everyone. But, you know, people would shout out people. Would, there was this sort of sense of audience participation um, and um, that really sort of like went along with the vibe of the venue and the nature of the films that were shown. And people at that time um, would certainly sort of like identify themselves culturally 
by the places that they went and the films that they watched and the T-shirts that they wore and the badges on their lapels. And I think the Scala was really a place that accommodated this kind of, well, you know, it goes back to what Ali was saying, it was a sort of tribal gatherings. But I think critically is the post-punk thing and also the political allegiances um, and the social allegiances that people made. So um, I remember back in 1980, uh, a friend um, having her passport photographed done and being turned down for a a visa for America because she was wearing a CND badge. Um, So you'd wear your CND badges, you'd wear your anti-apartheid badges, you'd wear your punk badges on your lapel. Um, and you would pick up your Scala programme and you'd put it up on your wall and your friends would come round and they'd see that you were a member of this place. You'd have your little membership card in your wallet. So I think there are all these sort of like cultural signifiers that enable people to feel very much part of a scene when they went to the Scala. I think one of the ideological templates of punk as well was that was that sort of breaking down of the, of the, of the wall, the division between the audience and the people on the stage. And I think this was another kind of, you know, very much a kind of MO of the Scala and, and that kind of vibe, you know, that as Jane, as Jane's alluded to, you know, sometimes the people in the audience would be, be the people whose films you were watching. Um, and that that definitely came out of punk. I mean, this was this was amongst all reps, probably with the exception of something like the screen on the green, which literally hosted the Sex Pistols and the Clash. This was the punk, London's punk cinema, you know, with that vibe and that legacy. To tell a story over 15 years is a long period of time. So pulling, to get, pulling, that, pulling that information together and everything you had at your fingertips and everything you'd known, plus new interviews you were able to gather, what, what do you remember being the biggest storytelling challenges for a documentary about Scala? Because to me, you, you cram a lot into, the, into it. So in what sense, I mean, obviously, <laughs> let's not talk about what's on the cutting room floor, but think about what... What were the challenges for you guys as the filmmakers? And I guess if I start with you, Ali, as kind of bringing it bringing it from a kind of audience point of view, what what were you hopeful to get across in terms of in terms of the story for the for the Scala documentary? You know, I, I I always say this, but first of all, as a kind of nascent debutant co-director, um, I've realised the most important thing when you make a documentary um, is to honour your subject. Um, hence, the film has a certain kind of aesthetic and a certain vibe, and is using uh, sort of mixing and matching particular kind of aesthetics from, from from bygone retro films, the sort that would show at the Scala, hence sort of split screen and jump cuts and and, and a slightly, slightly sort of grimy vibe. Um, more than that, as you rightly say, the Scala story is incredibly epic. It's sprawling. I mean, for me, it's no exaggeration when I say I think it's genuinely the subculture equivalent of something like the V&A, the Victorian Albert Museum. It's that big. You know, it's bigger than the Roundhouse or the Exploding Plastic Inevitable or whatever it is. You know, it's huge. Um, so to do this, you, you know, there's a series of kind of en- entry points that we could have gone. Um, I remember very pretentiously in the early days, I mean, Jane may remember this about two or three years ago, uh, wanting to call it an all-nighter at the Scala. And this is when we thought we'd have more money, actually. Um, <laughs> we were going to frame it as a series of kind of, we were going to frame the film like a conceit, conceit of, of kind of five films, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, with those kind of intertitle cards. And we'd have a different kind of thing. And, and for me, it was going to be quite woozy, the ambience. It was going to be quite ambient and woozy and quite sort of dreamy and dreamlike um, until we decided, no, let's just make a slightly straighter documentary than that. Um, some of these things are a consideration, as I say, the budget. Some of them 
are, as I said, because we wanted to get the vibe of the Scala. That was really important to us. Um, and what we've ended up with, I think, is very much like the Scala. It's this kind of kaleidoscopic, eclectic, incredibly Catholic, scrapbook kind of approach um, that hopefully and, and, and truthfully and authentically sort of gets over the Scala experience. And what about for you, Jane? Because obviously you you were both the punter who went to see films and gig and bands there, but also you became the programmer there as well. So you had a, a very much an active role in what it did. So so what, what for you were the storytelling challenges for you in this documentary? So we decided fairly early on in the in the filmmaking process that what we wanted to do was focus on the audience's voices, the audience who went on to become uh, filmmakers, writers, musicians, artists, actors and activists. That was our structure. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew that we wanted a sort of approximate three act structure because that's a sat- that, that makes for a sat- satisfying piece of storytelling. We knew that we wanted to make a big screen documentary because the you know the subject matter and the form follow the, the form follows the subject matter. So um, and actually the sort of sprinkling in of the management voices in the film, Stephen Woolley, myself, uh, Jane Pilling, Joanne Seller, Mark Vallon, Helen DeWitt were the cinema managers who were yeah. interviewed for the film. That actually quite came quite late into the process um, because we realised that in order to make something that worked historically in terms of its three-act structure as well as emotionally, um, we needed certain bits of information about the beginning, the middle and the end. Mm. Um, so we needed the management to to talk about that. It wasn't necessarily something that the audience could say, although we did ask each of our interviewees, and we had 50 of them. We wanted a lot of voices in this because the Scala audience was a million people over 15 years. And so we wanted to get a lot of um, different um, types of voice into our film, uh, both in terms of like gender and class and um, ethnicity. And I think we managed to achieve that. But we also managed to achieve like 50 hours worth of interview footage. So one of the biggest challenges in the in making the film was in whittling that um, interview footage, which was a lot of gold dust, and uh, as well as a lot of rubbish, um, down into um, one third of a ninety-minute long film. So that's where the the brilliance of our editor Andy Sark, also our producer, hmm. um, assisted by um, uh, a guy called Ed Mills, um, and we all worked together to kind of like shape the piece. And just to add that the, the three-act structure is roughly, we thought about sex, drugs and rock and roll, but not in that order. We've got rock and roll, <laughs> sex and drugs, and there's a bit of kind of preamble and a bit of legacy. Um, but it's sort of roughly around that, or as Ali puts it, it's the sort of lead up to the party, the party and then the hangover and the sort of remorse at the end. Um, That's more or less our structure. What we knew we didn't want to do was a um, fairly straightforward sky art style documentary, Mm. historical documentary, where the management, the sort of, you know, the white management tells the people who weren't there what it was like. What we wanted was our diverse audience expressing what it felt like to be there. Yeah, no, and that's definitely the feel. That's definitely what you get as a viewer, a sense of and and I, and I say that as someone that never got to go. I I grew up in Manchester, so the Scala was very much 
advertised in the classifieds of the music press and things like that from from where I was viewing it from. So it was like, and I was seeing the kind of films you were, you were programming and thinking, I can't see that. That's a banned video or, you know, whatever it might have been. And so the Scala was always this sort of place on high ground from from where I was looking, but never I never got to see it. So to, to, to watch the documentary, it was so much fun to get the sense of, I actually, I got a sense of what I missed out on, not in a kind of regretful way, but the experience, the way people shared their experiences of it made me feel like, you know, yeah, that was that was a gang that, I mean, not, not a specified one, but it was a gang. We certainly made the film um, so that it would work for an audience who weren't there at the time. So um, obviously, if we only made it for the people that were there and are still alive, then that would be a very small um, group of people. And we found by taking the film out to festivals and um, internationally and cinemas around the country, um, that people really do have a point of connection with it. And it's interesting that some of the um, strongest voices coming out of the actual audience for watching our documentary are those of 20-something young women who come up to us and say, oh, my God, you know, I want to set up a film club. I want to work in archives. I want to work in cinemas. You know, they're super keen on it. But also people... Um, who and even though the Scala did have an audience from all over the UK and even internationally, and we saw this from the mailing list of the monthly program, um, but being close to King's Cross, the major terminus, really facilitated like ease of transport to London. Um, but we've also found that people are, t- you know, it rings a bell with them about like maybe you had a place in Manchester that had a feeling like that it might not have been it might have been a record shop it might have been a vintage clothes huh. shop it might be something else but it's certainly kind of touching touching the emotions of people just sort of thinking about what their version of the Scala was or could be I think James really touched on it I mean like in Liverpool you have Eric's in Manchester you have the Hacienda you know these, hmm. these are music places but but as I said earlier you know the Scala the, the Scala as a cinema had more in common with kind of music venues than what's in the cinema hmm. Well, I mean, even even like the what was, I mean, we've now got home in Manchester, but there was the corner house, and so I would have I was able to see things like a John Woo triple bill and things like that. So the flavour of what I thought of as Scala, I could get access to bits of it. But I think for me, looking at it certainly in the eight through the eighties prism was the Scala was like the I could have, I could have seen the forbidden fruit <laughs> as a boat, which is something that, that you know, I, it comes across really well. And not in a kind of like, weren't we daring way, but it just like, it was like, why not? You know, it was, it was more of a why not show because it was in the end, they're only films. They're not, they're not as dangerous as, as, as the, as the government at the time liked to make out that they were. We've come to the end of our conversation about the documentary. Uh, I'll put links, I'll put links and dates in the show notes so people can, uh, can find out how to watch it in the new year. Um, but now we shall move on to three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. Just so you know, what we're going to do is we're going to do your three films. We'll have a five-minute timer going on um, so that when when five minutes are up, you will hear this noise at five minutes. Okay. And that's our five minutes up, and then we move on to the next film. Okay. Okay. Right then, let's start off with your first choice, which is Un Chant de Mort by Jean Genet, 1950, a 25 minute sort of long short. So what 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 was the reason for choosing this film? Where does this fit in your in your film fandom and, and maybe in reference to the Scala? Well, as I said, I discovered the Scala in August 1981. Um, and then I carried on going to the Scala 
for throughout the 1980s. And I started at film school in Reading um, in 1983 and was doing a very interesting course and discovered the films of Raina Werner Fassbinder. Um, and we were studying melodrama. And so um, like Fassbinder's melodramas, uh, uh, Fear Eats the Soul, um, compared to, you know, the, the films of Douglas Sirk. So it's quite an academic course, but really exciting. It really opened up um, ideas about uh, wanting to seek out films by those filmmakers that we were only sort of learning about, mm. not necessarily seeing their complete works. So the Scala provided a sort of alternative, like parallel curriculum to what I was studying at film school in Reading. And I noticed that the Scala was showing Corel by Fassbender and having really loved Fear Eats the Soul I went to seek it out um, at the Scala from home, from where I was living in Reading and there was a short film showing with it and that was called Inchon de Moore. I didn't know that at the time because the film had no kind of like header on it like the, the, the title was lost it was silent and the projectionist was showing, uh, playing I think Eric Salty music or something like that hmm. um, over the top of this silent black and white 25 minute long film which was about two men in prison trying to communicate through the prison wall and it was very romantic and very explicit and I couldn't quite believe what I was seeing it was sort of like what is this what is this little scrap of film um and the looks at the program I saw it's by Jean Genet um who wrote the book of Corella Fress that uh, the Fassbender film was based on ah. and I became really interested in Jean Genet and I started like reading his books and being really excited by that literature in the way that you know music and film and books and you know what your friends were reading and recommending all became part of the thing you'd read William Burroughs because your friends recommended it mm. or Jacques Carac, a very kind of like 80s um publishing scene um so I um couldn't find any information in the library about Enchantemore. It's obviously pre-internet. This was mid-80s, pre-internet. Um, and then when I finished my film course, I asked my teacher um, what he thought I should do next. And he suggested that I should do an MA in film. Um, so I asked if I, I didn't want to, like everyone at that time was doing like MAs or PhDs in the films of Alfred Hitchcock or, you know, and it, it was massive and I didn't want to do that. So I said to him, and his name is Richard Kiknoski, actually, he was a fantastic, he was a great teacher, still is a great teacher at the London Film School. Um, but he would go on from that point to direct a lovely film called Love and Death in Long Island with Jason Preecy and um, John Hurt in it. Anyway, um, Richard said, well, when I said I could only really imagine writing about something really small, he said, why don't you write about Enchanté Moore. So I applied to film, um, applied to Kent University to do an MA to uh, buy research and thesis. And my subject was... Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Oh, 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. by Chenet, I thought it was a good idea to study and research something that there was very, very little information about. And right at this moment that I started work, Jean Genet died. And I read an obituary of him by an American author called Edmund White, who was famous for his semi-autobiographical novel, A Boy's Own Story. Mm. He was an American writer living in Paris. And I wrote to him, and asked him where he got some of his information in the um, obituary from. And he, being Edmund, a very generous person, immediately invited me to go meet him in Paris and collaborate with him. Uh, he was writing this massive wow. auto, uh, this massive biography of Jean Genet. It's like 800 pages or something. And I was my, write my thesis about this little film. So we worked together. He took me to the south of France to meet Lucien Senemo, who was one of the men in the film. And I got incredibly privileged information for my thesis. Um, actually, I didn't understand film studies. I didn't understand psychoanalysis and semiotics, but I did understand history. And my thesis was published as a book by the BFI in 1991. Um and it also that led to them obtaining the rights to Enchantemore, publishing it on VHS and DVD, and film prints of it being available to this day. Amazing. They can a new score from Simon Fisher-Turner, which is beautiful as well. And um, it was like a really, it's an important film for me because it's not only beautiful and great and really sexy with these gorgeous men and their naked bodies in it. It was just the sort of thing that a woman like me wanted to be watching. Um, but also it was my first publishing gig. Your second film is A Clockwork Orange, Kubrick's classic from 1971. Do you want to tell us where that fits in, in the Jane Giles canon? Sure. So, um, and Shonda Moore is a really interesting example of a film where the rights kind of like came and went. Mm-hmm. And all films, um, are subject to rights. And I grew up in an era where it was impossible to see Clockwork Orange um, in the UK because it had been withdrawn from distribution back in the early 70s. Um, I think everyone knows the story. I won't mm. go into it now. Yeah. It was due to kind of like, you know, threats of violence against the director, due to kind of, you know, sort of supposed copycat violence um or sort of youth like violent youth saying clockwork orange made me do it type thing with yeah, their yeah, defense yeah. so it's really hard to see this film um and you'd have to go to paris which wasn't any hardship 
you know, you could fly or go on the boat to Paris. You could see the film and cinemas there. You go to Berlin, you could see it there. Um, but when I was managing the Scala in the late 80s, early 90s, we had a selection box in the foyer for people to put their suggestions of films that they would love to see in it. And every single day you'd get like slip after slip after slip after paper that scribbled in biro, clockwork orange, please, 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 clockwork orange, clockwork orange. People were really desperate to see this film, not on pirate video. I wasn't really a kind of like video watcher. Um, I'd grown up with uh, Betamax in the house, so we could rent those big videos like Evil Dead, like pre Bright Bill, pre Video Nasty. Yeah. Um, but when I, by the time I was a student, like video machines were too expensive um, and computers didn't exist. So cinema was really the only way, or television was the only way of seeing films. Um, so at the Scala, when I had the opportunity to show a collector's print on 35mm of A Clockwork Orange on my big screen, and I had that, you know, sort of authority to um, show what I wanted, I made a very hasty decision to um, put the film on in a double bill with um, as a surprise film, a uh, double bill with Lindsay Anderson's film F. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it turned into a sort of nightmare. Um, the uh, screening was, it was an illegal screening. It was um, reported to the film's distributor, Warner Brothers, who reported it to the trade organisation, the Film Distributors Association, who reported it to the Federation Against Copyright Theft, which was an organisation set up, funded by the studios to fight illegal VHS replication. Yeah. Um, they pursued a criminal prosecution against me as the person, um, as the, you know, responsible uh, person of the organisation at the time who'd made the decision to programme the film. Yeah. The whole case dragged on for a year from 92 to 93 and was um, a really depressing, drawn-out, expensive um, procedure. It's not the reason why the Scala closed. Um, Scala closed because the lease ran out. And the parent company, Palace Pictures, um, did not exist by that point. They'd gotten into financial problems. Um, Also, King's Cross was being redeveloped to make way for the Channel Tunnel uh, uh, terminus that eventually came into St Pancras. So it was all, and it was a time of recession, as well as kind of like the growth in in VHS. So audience behaviour was changing. So that's a rather long-winded way of saying that the film impacted on me because... um, I did make a decision to show I did take responsibility, but it's kind of followed me around for the last 30 years. People say, you know, you closed the Scala by showing Clockwork Orange. I didn't close the Scala by showing a Clockwork Orange. It didn't help, but it wasn't the reason. What what year was that when you showed it at the Scala? 1992. I'd actually just left my job. I'd I'd sort of moved on. I was working in film distribution by that point. Um, But continued to be the person you know liable yeah, even yeah, though yeah. I was actually not actually working at Scala by that point yeah because I left in mid-92 just to give the listener a sort of context you you not only sort of showing it breaking the what what the people what the, the the copyright problems but the ban wasn't lifted till 99 on seeing the film full stop so 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is one thing that was interesting. Um, like at the time, the kind of press coverage of the court case, uh, Screen, um, Screen International, now Screen.com, Screen Daily, published a really nice little piece. Finish your like, thought, so, finish your thought. Saying, I hope that when, I hope that when uh, A Clockwork Orange is finally re-released by Warner Brothers after Kubrick's death, they'll give a full apology and financial reparation to Jane Giles. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens in terms of the reissue six months or a year or so after Kubrick died. And no, I never got an apology <laughs> or financial <laughs> reparation. But the film finally came out and now audiences can see it legally um, in all its glory. And then finally, Ridley Scott's 1982 sci-fi noir Blade Runner. So Blade Runner, when I talked about like that summer that I was cleaning airplanes mm. um, in Gatwick Airport, um, the lights at night and the feeling of the sun rising and the rabbits, everything, it had a real, that was the, the, the summer that Blade Runner came out in the UK. And it had a real vibe to it. And um, I loved Blade Runner at first viewing um, and did program it at the Scala. But then I'm talking about, I was talking with Clockwork Orange about becoming a distributor. Um, and that was the reason why I left the Scala. But Clockwork Orange became unavailable to cinemas to book. Mm. Um, was, um, excuse me, Blade Runner became unavailable to cinemas to book um, when it was under license for the um, Blade Runner 2046, the, the, the prequel or the sequel, or yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever it is. So the rights have been withdrawn. The the Scott, um, the, the, the Blade Runner partnership that owned the rights to Blade Runner withdrew the film from distribution. By that point, um, sort of um, mid mid. Um, sort of 2008, 2010, I was running distribution at the BFI. We were doing a big sci-fi Christmas season and the film that I really wanted to re-release as a classic, modern classic, was Blade Runner, um, which at the time was withdrawn from distribution. It took me probably a year to negotiate the rights mm -hmm. um, with Blade Runner partnership with multiple lawyers involved it was a really, really tricky negotiation, um, which I finally achieved. I was, had enormous sense of personal achievement in managing to legally license this great movie that wasn't available to cinema audiences at the time. Um, and the film went on to be like one of the BFI's most financially successful reissues of all time. So it was hugely profitable just wonderful and just to finish up that thought um i took my daughter uh i went with my husband and, uh, and our kids to see blade runner at nft1 as part of the south bank season um when it was reissued by the bfi and uh, there were people in the audience like spiz energy you know it's like it was a full cinema people had really turned out for it it was a great vibe um but We'd had to license the director's cut. That was one of the conditions, even though I wanted to license the version that originally came out on first release with the voiceover. I always really loved the voiceover. Mm -hmm. um, and I was sitting there watching it in the NFT. And my daughter turned to me at that point towards the end when 
um, Harrison Ford is dangling from the building and Rutger Hauer, who's dying, uses his last shred of energy to pull Harrison Ford up on top of the building. And my daughter turned to me and said, why did he do that? And I whispered in her ear, perhaps at that moment he loved life more than, you know, and kind of whispered the voiceover that was originally put <laughs> pour out the confusion of the audience at that point um and uh, it was a magical moment and i think that all three of those films that i've chosen as being films that have kind of followed me throughout my life and my career um i've chosen because they've been sort of magic but also they've been representative of moments in my career where i've been able to make something more widely available, because that's really the role of the um, film distributor, which has been my primary um, job throughout the last 30 years. I, I think it's interesting when you pick up that point about the, the the sort of excitement within the audience, you know, that, that which is the thing, I think that's the thing about what you would call event cinema, which is like, obviously week to week we get new releases. So there's kind of like, if I miss this bus, I'll get the next bus that comes along. Whereas when you're programming a retrospective or a kind of classics thing or even just things that don't fit in with the release program. There's a sense of an event. I mean, I was, I was at the uh, variety screening that you did the Q and a at. Um, and at that event, I could sense that there was an excitement, you know, and I think there's something about that in cinema. You, you kind of know when you're at one, don't you? You, there's a, everyone's coming in and people are seeing friend, you know, faces they recognize and that all adds to the buzz. We're so excited that um, the BFI South Bank are doing a whole season of Scala films, mm. um, great Scala greatest hits. And we're planning, and there's also some events, and we're planning some special intros, um, which are going to be thematically uh, themed intros, people being costumed, there'll be like audience participation, um, which I'm sure is a nightmare for some people. <laughs> but uh, we really want to make a point about the liveliness of the yeah. audience. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you for sharing those three films. Thank you, Stuart. Really always a pleasure speaking with you and I'll hop off now. Thank Take you. Care. Thanks for joining me. Take yeah. care. Have a good week. And I will abruptly now move on to, I'll let Ali into the room. Oh, hey, how you doing? First off is a performance directed by Donald Camel and Nicholas Rogue from 1970. Where does that fit in with, with Ali Catterall? You, your note you gave me was where I come from. Yes. Um, so do we, do we all know what performance is about? Shall I give, shall I give the, um, uh, the, the top line of performance for those who are not aware of what performance is? Uh, so performance, um, it stars, uh, James Fox and Mick Jagger, and it's directed by Donald Kamel and Nicholas Rogue. And it's, um, it's about, it's set, it's, it's kind of where the craze meet Crowley, meet Alistair Crowley. Uh, via uh, the Order of Assassins, uh, very strange sixties reference points. They all kind of come together in this glorious, uh, often pretentious, and completely fucked up melange. And it's about a gangster played by James Fox who's on the run, and he holds up in a um, fading rock star's house in Notting Hill, played by Mick Jagger. And um, in uh, James Fox's kind of gangsterism, Mick Jagger sees a way to, to, to kind of re-embrace his demon that he's lost, his kind of stage persona, his kind of demon. And he thinks he, mm. can, he can get this from James Fox, whereas James Fox just wants an escape at all costs. And unfortunately, he, he's, he bites off more than he can chew. So by the end of the film, 
um, both of them have kind of merged into each other's personality through um, through kind of. Mod- so what? So what makes this film important to you? This film is where I come from. Um, I grew up. Uh, I didn't grow up in Notting Hill. I grew up in Chelsea, which is kind of southwest of Notting Hill. But yeah, I grew up in a bohemian uh, squat in what I would say is Angela's Ashes poverty, or perhaps being hippie, it was lentil poverty, uh, below the breadline, uh, with a Crowleyite stepfather, a practicing warlock uh, from stepfather, and a radical feminist from mother, uh, who later became general secretary of the Fawcett Society. Um, he was a psychopath. Uh, he was a regular practitioner of black magic under my startled nose. And all this is happening in this in this lentil poverty council squat. Uh, we were what you'd call kind of poor with books. There were hundreds of paperbacks, yellowing paperbacks around, surrounded by hippie paraphernalia. Um, or rather more kindly, we were arts and crafts. I think you might get the vibe here. Um, when I watch performance, there's certain scenes in that. Um, particularly where James Fox first encounters Power Square, where Mick Jagger lives, um, in which he sees kind of feral uh, sort of children <laughs> running amok um, through Power Square. That whole vibe was my childhood, basically. To watch performance now is to revisit um, an extraordinary time for me. Um, I'll also mention the fact that where I grew up might as well have been an enormous soundstage. I, I grew up in a road called Lots Road, uh, which is kind of uh, kind of then a kind of um, slum elbow of just off the King's Road in Chelsea, directly opposite the Lots Road Power Station. Um, and we were a kind of, being bohos, we were a kind of archipelago of otherness. You know, we were surrounded by um, fellow bohos. We, uh, we, we lived above an American performance poet who kind of held open house for kind of fellow artists and political distance and up-and-coming musicians, one of whom was called Philip Glass, who used to visit. Um, oh wow! Yeah, next door with a modern compl- classical composer and an underground filmmaker from from Oz, um, who'd who'd so who'd sort of project film noir classics and exploitation movies on his backyard late into the evening. It's one of my first memories of kind of sprawled on exotic cushions by hippies, kind of watching these films. It was almost virtually a primer for the Scala, um, and incredibly cinematic. And and for me, it kind of seemed natural that kind of film crews and commercial makers and video and music videos directors would kind of haunt our streets for years looking for sort of atmospheres. Uh, you can actually see my road in, a, in an old Ready Break advert. It was the hip hop one where everyone's sort of glowing like beacons. Um, and, <laughs> and sort of, you know, if, if you go and Google Ready Break uh, hip hop, you'll find it immediately. That's Lot's Road. And as someone comments in the comments, you know, that looks like the aftermath of a nuclear war, man. And, you know, it just looked like that. It li- that was how horrible it was that's that's where i grew up um yeah i was gonna say yeah because for, for, for the oh there goes the there goes the five minute bell just i'll just say one more thing i just you know london's come a long way in 50 years hasn't it kind of thing in, it's, in I terms mean, the, of... the area I, I live around the corner now um we, hmm. we, we moved to a rotting house um with, with, with no roof I, mean, I remember once my bedroom ceiling uh, fell in when i was um 17 and um pigeons would kind of fly around the room sort of alfred hitchcock style and I was reduced to sort of sleeping on the floor on a dirty mattress surrounded by Tupperware containers, having a kind of tick-tock rain orchestra sort of around me. Um, so, th- yeah, that, that was my life by the time I discovered the Scala. Um, so it's interesting to me that the kind of content of the movies I saw there uh, was just as surreal and disturbing, sort of outlandish as anything from my home life. But but somehow the, the fiction of these films provided a kind of safety net, a kind of filter, a sort of this kind of crucial 
removed from reality, you know, which is why the Scala became a kind of refuge for me, as it did for so many other people. Um, so, so anyway, so, so, so to, to cut all this down, performance is where I come from. That's my life. So in, in terms of London being, being like a theatre set, being like a film set, then Theatre of Blood from 1973, your second choice, is, a, is, a, is almost like a technical, aversion, a technical or heightened version of London in the early 70s, isn't it? Theatre of Blood is, is, is also, I mean, it's, it's one of the great London films, funnily enough. But, you know, it, yeah, it is, no, without a doubt. In, in which you've got the cast and crew sort of roaming the depressed capital of the early 1970s. And in fact, um, the area I grew up in as well, again, I, I, I liken it to a kind of enormous soundstage because there is almost every slab of that bit of Chelsea um, has had a film crew pass it. I mean, point of fact, there's a scene in Theatre of Blood um, where a, a guy's drowned in a vat of wine. And that the entrance to that, to that little place is literally around the corner from Uncle Monty's place and with Nan and I, or you know, or where it was shot. Hmm. Uh, across the road is where Alex Delarge gets a kicking from 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 some old blokes underneath the Albert Bridge. Um, the houseboats just beside it are where um, uh, Oliver Reed uh, works in. I'll never forget what's his name. Um, and then, of course, around the corner there's uh, there's, there's Dracula's you know mini min, mini skirted. Um, Acolytes from Dracula AD nine seventy two. I mean, it's it's no way. Yeah, almost every. I'll, I'll have to take you down there one day. Almost every slab of that of that square mile, the the blow up house, the party house, and blow up is there. Um, it you know. So so I grew up as I said on an enormous soundstage, um, which 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 must have helped. I mean, it's it kind of it impressed upon me the fact that kind of reality and fantasy were very close to one another, and they could be sort of punctured like skin, if you like. I mean. Mm. Um, added to this the fact that a friend of mine, um, a, fr a family friend called Paul Oliver, who's in everything, you'll see him in everything. Once you see him in one thing, you'll see him in everything, is in Theatre of Blood. He's being prodded awake by Michael Horden at the beginning. You see Paul Oliver in Star Wars when C-3PO and Luke walk into the walk into the um, cantina and he's sitting on the right, you know, at a table by himself. You'll see him in American Wealth in London um, in, in a sex cinema, sort of gazing with horror as David starts changing. Um, you'll see them in everything. So yeah, the Theatre of Blood, my all-time favourite film. Um, uh, I think, sort of, yeah, yeah and, and personal for, for, for those reasons, not least of which the fact that I too am a member of the critic circle. So so thoroughly expect to be done in by by a maniac in a week any time now. You know. Um, yeah. I mean, does does it out of interest? Does because because obviously fr framing something for a film means that what's not in the frame. We can't see, but obviously, when you're looking at a place that you're familiar with, are you able to sort of remove the reality when you're seeing the places, or do you do you, do you see the place that I, it really I, I is? I see the place. I mean, particularly where I grew up, Lots Road. I mean, like you, you watch the opening of Quadrophenia, the scene immediately after he's standing on the cliff edge. You've got uh, Phil Daniels and Co. and Phil Davis kind of racing down, racing down the road. That's Lots Road. That's my road. Um, hmm. The place where I'm living now is actually in a Terence Trent Derby video in Sign Your Name. You can literally see <laughs> my in that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that was, and you can see the Lotsbury Power Station in there as well. Also, very personal film, Theatre of Blood. I realise we haven't exactly said what it's about. It, it, it's about a critically... It doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Also, People can find that out. Also, Theatre of Blood, very personal for me as well, because it started me on the road to becoming a film critic, because it was the very first film review I ever wrote age 14 for English, right? In, in my in Really? Yeah, there you go. That's that's the review. Theatre of Blood. There you go. 
Um, and aged forty because it's quite. I mean, what what surprised me with Theatre of Blood because I I only saw it when they did the Blu-ray reissue. I'd never seen it before then, and I was surprised at how vi- I mean, it's funny, but it's a violent movie. It's it's it's. I just love it. It's, I've, I've I've written here age fourteen. The witticisms fly fast and furiously amid many stomach churning scenes. And I end I end the review going a superb cast supported by beautiful gags. Although not recommended for young children, I was fourteen for fuck's sake. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, it's um, I lo- I love it. I love it so much. Um, the- I mean, it's like an anthology. So for for the benefit of the audience, what's your favourite? What's your favourite sequence of the uh, of the revenge that's meted out? Oh God, it's got to be Robert Morley and his poodles. I think. I mean, <laughs> Robert Morley's poor poodles are baked in a pie um, after symboling. <laughs> it's basically Prince. It's basically Vincent Price's favourite of his own movies as well. Um, that doesn't yeah, yeah. surprise he, me. He once said it was the best feeling of achievement and satisfaction I ever had from a film. Um, and Catherine Hepburn once said that that she thought that Price would have made a great Prospero from The Tempest. And I think really, you know, that here's the evidence, really. Here's the proof. And, you know, the irony is, that for me, although Lionheart's supposed to be this terrible actor, you know, one of the critics calls a, a ham sandwich, um, his Shakespeare and soliloquies are actually really fantastically delivered in this film, I think. And do, I mean, do you think it stands the test of time, Theatre of Blood? Oh, <laughs> let's not worry about that question. There goes the timer. <laughs> Moving swiftly along, but but staying in the same year, 1973 is The Wicker Man. The Wicker Man. The, the single most important film of your life and career, you, you say to me in your teaser. By the end of, by the end of this speech, I'm going to make Dave about The Wicker Man. Um, I'm going to convince you that magic actually exists, right? Okay. I'm all for that. I'm here. Right. I first saw The Wicker Man when I was 14 on the 25th of January, 1985. And I was watching it on LWT. It wasn't the 102-minute version. This was the theatrical cut for, for, for now. Mm-hmm. And unbelievably, on the other side, on Channel 4 that night, they were showing a razor head. <laughs> so two Scala favourites immediately. And during the ad breaks... I would flick back over while watching Razorhead. I'd flick back over to Wicked Man. I'd never seen either of them before. And my mind was completely blown. And after a bit, I ended up settling with the Wicker Man. I ended up sticking with the Wicker Man because it had a more sort of coherent storyline uh, and also Britt Eklund, let's face it. Um, mm-hmm. So there you go. So I first saw it when I was 14. And um, I originally got into film writing. This is how I originally got into film writing. After I wrote an article for The Guardian about the Wicker Man for The Guardian in 1998. And that article led directly to a publishing deal. I was called up by Fourth Estate literally that, that the day the paper came out, which never oh, happens, kids, by the way, um, who called up and said, would you like to write a whole book about the Wicker Man? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Um, and a week later, he called back. His name was Andy Miller. You, you may know him as the, he's gone on to become the, the host of a, of a quite celebrated sort of literary podcast. Um, but back then he was a commissioning editor. And a week later, he phoned back and said, oh, I'm really sorry, someone else is writing a book about The Wicker Man. Uh, so we had another week, myself and my co-writer, si- the late Simon Wells, crying uh, into our sandwiches, going, oh, God, we could have we could have done it. You know, I was 29, you know, I was in 30. Um, and then he called back and said, would you like to write an entire book about British cult movies? And for the benefit, for the benefit of your listeners, here it is. It's called Your Face Here, British Cult Movies Since the 60s. And it's the first book ever written about British cult movies exclusively. Um, and it was quite, it was quite sort of critically acclaimed at the time, if I say so myself. Um, anyway, and 
because of that book, uh, during that book, I that 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 book had a chapter on Clockwork Orange in it, and because I knew that Jane's experience with the Clockwork Orange um, and the Scarlet, I called her up and I said, Jane, I didn't know from Adam at that point. I said, Jane, this is back in you know, two thousand. Would you like to talk about the Clockwork Orange trial? And she said, No, fuck off. Uh, quite reasonably, because it was still quite raw. You know, it was only like sort of, you know, seven years or something after after the court case. So I said, oh, absolutely. All right, then. Um, so because of this book, uh, anyway, because of this book, I became a freelance film writer for the next 20 years. Um, and, you know, I got to know Jane again uh, through through things like that. And Jane then became, uh, then, then Jane invited me to co-direct Scarlet with her. Um, now, I'll tell you this, the last build film that the Scala showed before its closure in 1993 in a double bill with uh, Witchfinder General was The Wicker Man. And to honour this, we've made it a clip um, over the credits reel of the final film in our, in our credits. And I want to tell you that on the summer solstice of this year, generally associated with May Day and with the film The Wicker Man, the BFI announced it had picked up UK and Ireland rights for our debut movie. Magic is real. I rest my case. You you thought it and, and you manifested it and uh, was it was the, 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 the you manifest it and then it happened. Is that what you're saying? And that and, and that is why the Wicker Man is the most important film of my of, 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 of my of my life and career. Full stop. It's it's an extraordinary piece of work. I'm, I'm, I don't know what there is left to say about it, but it is. Yeah, it's incredible. And now we're in the, the 50th anniversary of it. And I'm so delighted that more and more people will, 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 will come to, uh, will, will come to find my fate. My favorite little fact about the Wicker Man is how, um, it was received in the Southern States of America, not as a horror film, but as a film about martyrdom in the sense of Edward Woodward doesn't lose his faith. And that was seen as the power of God. And you're like, that is one brilliant reading of that film. <laughs> That's absolutely right. The producer, Peter Snell, and director Robin Hardy, actually, as you say, took it round those yeah. states and and said, do, do, said, do you find this offensive?" And they said, "No, because it, it's it's absolutely uh, logical and correct within that, within that framework." Mm. You know, yeah. absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Well, look, sir, that's bang on, bang on five minutes. Fantastic. I will put, as I said in the interview part of the podcast i will put links in the show notes about dates and stuff and i'll when i tweet about it i'll, I'll say all that it just gives me to say thank you very much for joining us on the britflix podcast thank you that's, that's such great questions thanks so much Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. 
From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.